0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, once again, good morning. It's also our joy, again, this Sunday morning, to invite you to turn together to our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. That's actually the entire chapter this morning. This is a great day in our church as we have this opportunity to be together and to open God's word as we do every Sunday. And then, of course, to to celebrate with Amy at the potluck right after this and to hear a great report and look forward to things to come. And for us to be able to take this time in the Word of God this morning to preach Christ. Even though we do it in a a really imperfect way, it is our desire, it is our joy to preach Christ every which way we can, from every which text we possibly can, because He is our hope. I think it's true for you as it is for me. I really feel in these days the need for hope. I feel the need for hope because of all of the wild things going on in our world. The news continues to come over and over again like waves of a storm, it seems, of bad news. And on top of that, we've been preaching through the book of Revelation, a challenging text about things in the future and intensified spiritual storms in the future coming upon the world, and we need hope. That's why I'm thankful for this part of the book of Revelation because we have another interlude. You may remember a few weeks ago, right at the beginning of chapter 7, there was an interlude that provided for us a kind of relief from the intensity of the unfolding plan of God that reminded us of who was in control. We have another one of those interludes this morning which is an incredible passage of scripture in the book of Revelation. In chapter 10, we have An interlude that gives us relief from these pressing troubles coming on the world, but also what I believe is an appearance of the person of our great hope, Jesus Christ. And so this morning we want to consider in him, in this text, what is our complete hope in Christ? I want to share with you from this text three truths that should give us hope. They should give us hope as we read about the things coming upon the world in the future, and they should give us hope because of the things we see going on in the world today. Here is the first truth. It is that Jesus himself brings with him everywhere that he goes global authority. Jesus brings global authority. We see that in this text because we see someone show up in the text that we've not seen yet, Look at verse 1. John says, I saw another strong angel coming down from heaven. Now, while there is certainly some debate upon who this angel is, I believe that this very likely is the actual person of Jesus Christ. And if not the person of Jesus Christ, it's an angel that is symbolizing all of his glory and all of his authority. And it might as well be him. So like I said before, I'm looking to preach Christ every which way I can, in every which text I can. And so I tend to do that this morning and pray that it would give us ultimate and complete hope uh, today. John says, I saw another strong angel coming down from heaven. This is the most detailed and most majestic description of any angel in scripture. Notice the things that John records about this angel. First, that this angel comes down from heaven. The angel does not merely come down to earth, but specifically is said to come down from heaven. He goes on and says that the angel is clothed with a cloud. In other words, surrounded, enveloped, consumed in a cloud. Did you know that nine out of the 20 references in the New Testament to clouds, nine of the 20 are about judgment? This is a picture of Jesus' judgment, his glory at this time in redemptive history. He goes on and says that he had a rainbow on his head. Here, of course, a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness seen with with Noah in the flood, of God providing the rainbow as, as a reminder of his covenant faithfulness. He goes on and says that this angel's face was like the sun. That's a way of talking about the radiance of the angel having come from the presence of God. He says that his feet are like pillars of fire, reminding us of stability and holiness. This seems to me like no ordinary angel. This mighty angel has come down from heaven clothed with... a with a cloud, a rainbow on his head, a face like the sun, feet like pillars of fire. And he comes down holding a little scroll, which was open. As we'll see in a few minutes, I think that this scroll contains an an abbreviated version of the Christian message of the message of Revelation. And we'll see why it's so small a little bit later. But what I want us to not miss is the key point of this text. For today and forevermore, It is the reminder that Jesus has divine authority, divine control, even in the midst of tribulation, even in the midst of end times troubles around the world. The Lord Jesus Christ has divine authority over all things, both then and now. As we continue on in just the first few verses of this chapter, notice the way he continues to describe him. After saying that he has a little scroll in his hand, which is open, he says that he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Can you just imagine for a moment this picture of this angel? How big of an angel does it have to be for him to put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land? This is a display of ultimate sovereignty, of ultimate presence. This is someone who has a foot everywhere and is reigning. That's the beauty of this interlude. What do we need more than this at this point in the text? We've heard all of these troubling issues coming out in the world and flying off the pages of the scroll and all of these terrifying experiences and problems and judgments. What do we need the reminder of? We need the reminder that we need every single day is that the Lord Jesus Christ is in control. And he's not just in control because he has his feet planted in different places of the world, but rather he has control also because he has ultimate global control authority he goes on and he says right after talking about his feet right and left that he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars this is the voice of authority this is the king of the universe and when he had cried out seven peals of thunder uttered their voices There is a growing, rising flood of of reference to this authority and control at this interlude, reminding us of just who it is that calls the shots. Now, as we read this text, we want to think about it in the context of the, the bigger picture of redemptive history. What does this tell us? Why is it so encouraging to us? Why is it uplifting and calming and comforting? Well, I think it is for us as Christians, calm and comforting and encouraging because we know that we have been given a Great Commission. We just spent Friday night celebrating the Great Commission, drawing more attention to missions by considering missionaries from many different places, how we can pray for them, the kind of work that they're doing, the difficulty, also praying along all of that that God would work in the hearts of our own people and others to raise us up and send us out. Why? Why? Why do we send missionaries? Why do we plant churches? Why do we share the gospel? It is not because we're afraid that if we don't, his plans won't come to fruition. We send missionaries and we plant churches and we share the gospel because we know that his mission will succeed. And how do you know that? You know that because his right foot is in the sea and his left foot is in the land. And he cries out around the entire world with the voice of a lion and all of the thunders gather around him as he is clothed with a cloud coming down from heaven, the covenant faithfulness crowned on his head, his face beaming with divine presence and his feet like pillars of fire, stable and righteous and holy. And in his hand, an open scroll, a message that he has come to deliver. This is central to Jesus' seek and save mission. And it is not merely authority to say it, to say what was going to happen, but to control it. This gives our evangelism, it gives all of our missions, all of our church planting, its fire. It gives it its confidence. It gives it its, its aggression, its power, its ambition into the world because we know who is in control. We know that the one who came to seek and saved his beloved will do it. This issue of control, I think, comes down to us in a similar way. In just the everyday experience, every day, just the ordinary experience of what it means to lose something that you treasure. We all have had that experience. We've all lost something that we treasure. It could be a a family heirloom, a, a locket that you carry around your neck that was handed down from your great grandmother. It could be something very valuable, like a wedding ring. Imagine losing that. Have you lost something like that before? I once had a wedding ring very similar to this one, which I found outside in the yard yesterday of the church building. And a number of years ago at the other house that we lived in, it was on my finger and I was casting over seeding my lawn and then putting out hay. And I was making it rain with the hay like this. <laughs> and about 20 minutes later, I looked down and it was gone. I had swept my wedding ring off into the yard in the midst of of. An enormous, what seemed like enormous field of, hay, I didn't even bother looking for it. I had no way of looking for it. But even then, that doesn't quite do it. I mean, imagine this. Imagine that if you were this kind of person, I'm not, and you wanted to go skydiving, and you jumped out of the plane and on the way down and in all of the turbulence of the wind, that locket from your great-grandmother flew off your neck or your wedding ring slipped off your finger and fell and floated down to the earth somewhere. You have no hope of finding it. You will never find it. But here is the beauty of this text. In a book that is all about the lost being found, spoken to a people who are all told, that's us, that you are lost and need of being found. Jesus never knows that experience. He never knows what it's like to lose something or to lose someone and not be able to find it. He has no idea what that is like, other than, of course, by his divine wisdom, he has no experience of that. And this is what infuses all of our evangelism, all of our missions, all of our church planting with its fire is that even though we may lose something precious to us and never be able to find it, it's not actually lost. It's just that I don't know where it is. But he knows where it is because his right foot is in the sea and his left foot is on the land. Listen to what Isaiah 46 says to us. We're going to actually follow a bit of that text throughout the rest of the time together this morning, point by point. This is first as we want to gain in the midst of this text and others a truth that we should rehearse in the interlude of Revelation chapter 10. Day by day, I want you to rehearse this truth, saying to God, there is no one like you Declaring the end from the beginning. That's the way that Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 46. Listen to these words. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my plan will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In times like these that we're experiencing in the world today and the times in the future that we are preparing for, this is a truth we desperately need to remember. It is a truth about God. There is no one like you declaring the end from the beginning. That's the ultimate statement of supremacy and sovereignty and control. And it is the ultimate statement of comfort to people who know that he is for them. That he actually has found you. You did not find him. He came looking for you and he found you and he took you to himself and he will never let you go. Therefore, we ought to rehearse that truth over and over and over again. And I'm being quite literal when I say that. Let me encourage you this week to begin doing this kind of rehearsing of the truth, saying back to God what is true about him and letting it echo into your own heart, among your own fears. There is no one like you declaring the end from the beginning. In the midst of temptation or trouble or tribulation, losses and crosses, the world, the flesh, the devil, and all the things that we experience in this life, can you imagine what a difference it would make if we together and individually made rehearsing the truth like this something that was common for us? That you throughout the day, driving in your car, in a meeting... Probably in the quietness of your own heart in that meeting, in your home, in the morning when you wake up, before you go to bed, if you and I were rehearsing these truths, there is no one like you. You just declare the end from the beginning. Jesus does this very thing, and it is our hope. The first truth to remember this morning is that Jesus brings global authority. But that's not all. Second, I want you to see that Jesus brings with it sworn certainty. Now, something interesting happens in the text in verse 4, and it's a little bit confusing. Sometimes that happens in Revelation. Maybe we feel like that happens a lot. And when it does, we want to do our best to understand it. But if we hit a wall and we just can't quite work it out, what are we to do? Move on. Move on to the more central truth, and that's what we've been trying to do throughout the book of Revelation when we hit these walls. Here might be one of them. Because notice what happens in verse 4. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken... John says, I was about to write. The idea is that these seven peals of thunder have followed the voice of this mighty angel crying out like a lion, and now they are speaking. It's a similar kind of thing as what you see in Psalm 19, which talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God and all of creation declaring his glory, that their line goes out throughout the world, their reverberation is heard everywhere, that kind of thing. That's what's happening here. So these seven peals of thunder are being pictured as speaking something that John is ready to write down. But then as soon as he gets ready to put his, I suppose, pen to paper, he hears a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Well, I want to know what those are. I want to know what those things are that those seven peals of thunder were speaking What would they be? I want to know. Or do I? Maybe I don't want to know. As some theologians have pointed out, it could be that what's happening here is that God is is exercising in this interlude a great expression of grace and mercy to the world because what were those seven peals of thunder going to say anyway? What were they going to declare? If the pattern of the book of Revelation is anything to consider, and it is, It's quite possible that they were declaring another series, another pattern of judgments upon the world, and he has said, seal those up and don't speak those out, because there is a time now of ongoing grace. This is what we have experienced in our lives from the very beginning, even prior to coming to Christ that God has infused in our lives this ongoing presence, this reverberation of grace and mercy. Perhaps that's what we're seeing here. But not knowing exactly what that is, we want to move on to the more central point. What is it that will feed our souls today? Verse 5, it's more about the angel. This angel gets more attention in verse 5 when John says, Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea... And standing on the land, raised a right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. This angel, now having come in this incredible description like no other, has in this moment, when that those peals of thunder are sealed and not written or spoken further, he raises a right hand. This is the picture then and now of what we recognize as the taking of an oath. He is swearing by him who lives forever and ever. This is a clear picture of oath-making. It's something we're familiar with. You you see this, you know how this goes, even if you haven't done it. I've never done it in a court of law, but you've seen it on TV or you've heard of others who have, that there's the raising of the right hand. It's, It's a kind of recognition by raising this hand of dependence and honesty. I'm going to tell the truth. In particular, for those who are Christians, you often think paired with that left hand on the Bible, It's a way of saying, surely I will not tell something untrue when I am swearing upon the Bible. I am saying that my testimony is as true as the Word of God as far as I can tell. That's familiar to us. We're getting a picture. That's the beauty of the Word of God, bringing things down to us so that we can understand it. You also understand oath-making when you were a kid on the playground. You said crazy things like, I swear on my grandmother's grave. There's nothing higher than that. It's because it's it's calling it into reality all of the honor that your grandmother deserves and you are swearing that what you're about to say is the truth. Well, what is this angel swearing? This angel has raised a right hand and swore by him who lives forever and ever. This is not your grandmother's grave. This is God Himself, the God of the universe, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. And this is what He swears that there will no longer be a delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when He is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he announced to his servants, the prophets. What is he swearing? He's swearing that there no longer will be, after this interlude, any more delay, but with certainty, sworn certainty, that the ancient plans that God had revealed to his prophets, those that we read about in Isaiah and other places, will be complete, and they will be complete for certain. This is another one of those truths that we need to be rehearsing to ourselves. It's the truth of God's certainty. We feel this almost every day. It is the feeling in a fallen world of uncertainty. We feel uncertain about what's going to happen next. Part of that is because we're creatures. We feel that. It bothers us. It it gets under our skin. We are not in control we are in very much at the mercy of the world and other people. That is by God's design. We are creatures by design. But also there's this other part of it where because we're fallen people, we wrestle with uncertainty in a fallen way. Our uncertainty doesn't always lead us to place our certainty in Christ. It causes us to place our certainty in ourselves, or we try to work out the details in our own mind, or maybe even control things as the way that we see they should happen. But here is the reminder that for those who are in Christ, you have not only His global authority at work around and in you, but you also have His sworn certainty. He has sworn by all that is holy and all that matters by God himself that his plans will be complete. We wrestle with this in the book of Revelation. It puts us off. It puts us at unease. We are afraid of what's going to happen. We're not quite sure if we're ready. We ask over and over again, when, 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 when? But instead, we do not need to be at unease. We can be certain if we trust and stay close to Christ. Notice again what Isaiah says in Isaiah 46. He says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times, things which have not been done. Here it is, saying, my plan will be established and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. That's the second truth that we should be rehearsing. We should be rehearsing not only that there is no one like you and you declare the end from the beginning because you have global authority, but there is no one like you. Your plan will be established. No one can stop it. No one can thwart it. No one can slow it down. In fact, every single appointment on his calendar is unmoved. He knows exactly when all of his plans will be accomplished. That ought to be an enormous relief to us. He knows what he's doing, and I just need to stay with him. So let's rehearse that truth this week and in the weeks that follow. Say back to him the words of scripture, your plan will be established. You accomplish all of your good pleasure and in that I can rest. There's the second truth. Jesus brings with him everywhere he goes sworn certainty. But then finally, the last truth this morning that I pray will give us all the hope that we need today is that Jesus brings with him everywhere he goes a life-changing message. This brings to our minds again the question of this little scroll, which I think is a summary. It's a little version of the other things we've been hearing about in the book of Revelation, perhaps in all of Scripture, a summary of the Christian message. And John is told by the voice to take the scroll. But what should he do with the message of the mighty angel? Well, God says so. He says, take the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel and stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel, he says, telling him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, or rather, more specifically, he was saying to me. It's a very present tense thing. It's an immediate moment of presence with him. He's saying to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, and in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. That saying that we have said since we were young or heard it, you are what you eat, is actually quite true. It's not only true physically. You've thought about that, right? It is true physically. You are what you eat. Now, sometimes we use that, um, you know, like... Harsh on people's health and all of that. But even beyond that, what are we saying? When you take something into your body, your body takes it in and it becomes part of you. It changes you. It gets into your cells, it gets into the fibers of your muscle, into your tissues, and it becomes part of you. You are what you eat. And therefore, this picture here is particularly helpful to us in a spiritual way because we don't only eat physically. In fact, just as Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And therefore, John is told to do what with the scroll? Take it and eat it. Take it into yourself. Make it a part of you. This is what he's being challenged to do. Such a helpful metaphor. Take and eat. And when you take and eat, just as real food does, it will affect and it will direct your life. We see that right here in this text. What does he say? Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Maybe something that comes to mind for us in that bitter sweet picture is probably something like dark chocolate. It kind of has that, doesn't it? There aren't a lot of things in life that we can draw on and say, okay, it's sort of like that. It's bitter, but it's simultaneously sweet. That's why I think that this is likely a a summation of the Christian message, because that's what the Christian message is, is it not? It is the mingling of bitterness and sweetness. It begins with the bitterness of our own sin and how we are far from God and separated from him because of our sin, because of what we have willingly chosen to do, violating his commands, ignoring his glory, or stealing from it. But yet the Christian message doesn't end there, does it? It follows that law with the gospel. And it says to us, he is full of grace and mercy for sinners like you and me. And therefore, when we take his word into us, it absolutely makes our stomach bitter. We hear that hard truth of who we really are apart from Christ, that there is nothing good in us. There's no reason that we would esteem ourselves or have confidence in ourselves or pat ourselves on the back. But yet at the same time, what does that message of Christ do? It is sweet in our mouths because it is alleviating our ultimate problem. It is changing our lives with its message. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the reminder of what we're to do with it. What should we do with the word of God? We should take it and we should eat it. We should consume it and make it part of ourselves. And then we should allow it to affect and direct our lives. This again brings us back to the reminder of why is it that we do missions? Why is it that we plant churches or even share the gospel? It's because the message has gotten inside of us. It has stirred up in our stomachs a bitterness for sin, a realization of exactly what's wrong with the world, but then also it has sweetened the palate of our mouths by reminding us of the good news that can set all things right and a reminder of the king who has global authority, who swears certainty that his plan is going to succeed and it's going to succeed on the wings of this message. It is a life-changing message finally here, one last bit of Isaiah 46, verses 12 and 13. He says, even there, listen to me, you stubborn-minded, who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay You just heard that. You just heard that in Revelation. It's coming up over and over again. His plans not delaying. His plans of righteousness and grace and salvation flourishing. Here it is again. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. Look at the very last verse of our text this morning. We're in verse 11. He says, and they were saying to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Here John is being given his own kind of great commission, but for us, it ought to be a reminder of the great commission that we have been given. That if in fact this message, this little scroll, this truth of God gets inside of us and becomes part of us, what should it do? It sends us out. It sends us out in missions and church planting and evangelism. It sends us out in acts of, of kindness, deeds of mercy to make Christ known. That's what we are sent to do. And therefore, at the end, we have to have one more truth that we rehearse. And it is this. God has given me a commission of righteousness, salvation, and glory by his grace. God, you have given to us a commission of righteousness, righteousness that brings about salvation, salvation that brings about your glory, and you've done it all by grace. That is exactly why we have to keep rehearsing the gospel. That's exactly why we need to keep the gospel paramount, to use that cliche of ours over and over again, because it is our hope. It is the life-changing message That the world needs to hear. We're going to continue celebrating this message. We're going to continue sending missionaries. We're going to continue with all the resources that we can muster to plant churches, and we are going to keep sharing the gospel. We have so many opportunities. You've heard about some of them already. Being a part of the parade is an opportunity for the gospel. Being a part of the July 4th celebration at Capitol is an opportunity for the gospel different ways that we can serve and minister in our communities or neighborhoods or workplaces or schools. Those are opportunities for the gospel. What do we need? We just need this little scroll to become a little more of a part of us every day. We need to keep being nourished on the truth of the gospel so that it will affect us and it will direct us just as we've seen here with John. That's the kind of interlude that we need We need this reminder that Jesus is ultimately in control and he is our complete hope. We want to end this time in the word of God as we prepare our hearts to sing together the truths that he's given to us by saying yet again that if you're here today or you're hearing us through a live stream or some other means, we want you to come to Christ. We want you to hear the gospel and believe and we want to be faithful to you. We will sit with you. We will talk about Jesus. We will open God's word to you. And then we need to continue doing that together, don't we? That's the whole purpose of community group. If you're not involved in community group life, get involved. This is where the taking and the eating happens. If you're not regularly a part of worship, you will suffer because this is where taking and eating happens. So let's reassert our commitment on the reminder that Jesus is our complete hope. And let us give ourselves to him again this morning, even as we prepare our hearts to sing again. Let me invite you to stand now where you are as you're able, as we pray and then sing to this king who has ultimate authority for us. Our Father, we do give you thanks today for Jesus. We give you thanks for your word and the declaration of your, your ultimate global authority that you have control of all things, that no one and nothing is lost on you. You know where all of us are. And you have all certainty. You have sworn by yourself certainty that your plans will come to fruition. And you have given us this incredible revelation in your word that your plans come about because of your message not because of the things that we can do or what we have to offer you or who we are, but ultimately because you have been gracious to us and you have announced to us good news. So God, we pray that you would help us as we continue focusing this morning on the important work of missions, church planting, evangelism, that we would have a renewed fire, a renewed sense of urgency and delight that we would share the gospel with confidence Not because if we don't, your plans will fail, but because they absolutely will succeed because you are in control. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs)